Hello and welcome to Exploring Global Problems, a podcast where we talk to academics from Swansea University whose groundbreaking research is tackling global challenges, from health innovation to sustainable futures and the environment, from digital technologies to clean energy. My name is Sam Blacksland and today I'm joined by Ian Walker, Professor of Environmental Psychology at Swansea. Ian's research explores traffic, transport and our behaviour. He has a particular interest in unconscious and low awareness causes of everyday behaviour and is also a world record holder in ultra-distance cycling. Ian, welcome to Exploring Global Problems. Thanks for having me. Lots to talk about here, particularly the cycling, which I'm very interested in. But before we start, can you just give us an overview of your research and you know some of your key findings? Yeah, so I started out uh, over 20 years ago doing work on cycling safety. And uh, that's led to a bit of a progression across other areas. So the cycling safety is essentially about uh, intergroup uh, interactions, uh, stereotypes, that kind of thing. It was very hard to get people to fund that work. Uh, Nobody's very interested in paying for research in that area. And so I found myself moving into the more general question of why people do or do not use more sustainable travel modes, because there was a bit more interest in that sort of research. And then from there... Uh, it was a fairly small jump to other areas of sustainability like um, energy consumption, water consumption, because once you're into that realm of why do people choose sustainable options, it expands to all those other fields as well. Great. So I mentioned this this phrase, unconscious and low awareness causes of everyday behaviour. What, what does that mean? It's a couple of things in particular. So on the one hand, uh, we've done a fair bit of work on habits So habits being, at least within the way we frame it, habits are behaviours that are triggered quite automatically, unconsciously by the environment you find yourself in. So a really good example in transport, I doubt many people left home this morning and did a big cost-benefit analysis of all the options open to them and checked the bus timetables. Pretty much all of us left home this morning and just did what we did yesterday. Uh, there's no real thought process goes into it. It's just the situation of leaving home triggers the behaviour that you've done in the past. And it's not really a conscious, thoughtful process, which becomes really important because giving you new information or tweaking the cost of your travel options doesn't change the behaviour because it's not a rational decision. It's just repetition of past behaviour. So that's one of the big unconscious aspects. One of the others is also people's lack of awareness of the extent to which they are motivated by, for example, imitating other people, uh, which is something we've looked at quite a lot, Mm -hmm. or also people's desire to to look good or feel good. So I'll give you a couple of examples. So in terms of the looking good and feeling good, we did a load of work uh, a few years ago now on people who'd recently bought new cars. And we did these really deliberately really, really long interviews with people uh, where we kept pestering them. We say, so can you think of any other reasons why you chose this? Can you talk us through any further, what, any, anything else? And eventually people would come on to the real motivations. So what we did, you look at the average order in which topics came up in those conversations. And the first thing people would generally talk about was practicality. And they'd say a lot about practicality. You know, oh, so I needed a car that I could get shopping into and so on and so on. And typically the second thing people would talk about was money. Uh, and they'd actually say a lot less about money than practicality. But And then they'd move on and they'd talk about you know, sales experience and t- talking to friends and family and things like this. And then eventually 
they get onto the image of the car. And they said so much about it when they eventually got onto it, but it would typically take 45 minutes to an hour before they would get there. And it was only after that 45, 50 minutes of saying, so was there anything else? Was there anything else? And eventually they'd get onto that topic and then have an incredible amount to say about it. And we were taking that as evidence of this is really important to people because they said a lot about it. In fact, they said as much about image as they did about money, but it took them ages to get onto it because it's not in the forefront of their mind. People are not aware of how much they're being being influenced by the image of the car. The best example was the guy who, it was something like, I, I think it was 56 minutes into the conversation, <laughs> and he eventually said, oh, you know, but at the end of the day, everyone who knows me thinks of me as a Jag guy, so I had to get another Jag. And you think, well, what was that last 56 minutes about? You know, that you your decision was made by the image, but it's taking you this long to admit it to yourself and to us. The other element of people being a little bit unaware of their behaviour is about imitation. And we've actually uh, done some really cute work on this in the context of showers. So uh, I had a PhD student a few years ago called Elaine Gallagher. And what we did there was we measured how long a load of people's showers were for several weeks. And then we started giving them feedback. And because we're psychologists and we quite like lying to people, it, the feedback was all completely fictitious. So, for example, we might monitor your shower for four weeks and then you got an email and it would say, uh, thanks for your data so far. We have analysed it and your showers are. And then there'd be a random number, like, say, four minutes. And then randomly it would either say longer or shorter than average. So it might say, yeah, your showers on average are four minutes longer than everyone else. And what we found was as soon as you told people how average they were, they became more average. So anyone who was having, if you told people they're having short showers, their showers started to get longer. And if you told people they're having long showers, their showers started to get shorter. And the reason we chose showers was because they're incredibly private. It's one of the few places where none of us know what everyone else does. And so we demonstrated that in that context, if you told people how average they were, in the one place where you never normally know, you saw people imitating the norm. So that's another example of the um, importance of these very low awareness behaviours that are actually quite a big influence on our ev everyday actions. Behavioural psychology is, is something some of us are a little bit more familiar with these days, isn't it? Because during sort of the COVID period, behavioural psychologists uh, became... I guess more prominent. There, there, there were people from that field on on the Sage Committee, for example, weren't they? And in terms of trying to shape the way that the general public behaved, it wasn't always medical advice that was being sought. It was actually people from your line of work as well. So, do you feel like your your field has become more prominent because of because of that, or at least in more prominent in the public eye? To some extent, it was very interesting during the pandemic. I spent a lot of time sitting there thinking, uh, "This is my field," but I. I genuinely don't know what I what we could do here. Um, and I worry that there's an element in behavioural science, especially the, the bits of it that have come from the more economics end, where we still lack strong theories of what's going on a lot of the time. I think there's a real tendency that what often happens is we just try stuff out and some of it works and... We go, oh, there we go. That was a, a nudge that did a thing. Um, but I would say that the science is not mature enough that you would be able to say in advance whether it's going to work or not. 
And actually, I'll give you an example of that from our own work. I did some work a few years ago with Keep Wales Tidy, who got in touch out of the blue and said, can you help us with an anti-littering campaign? We did this really lovely experiment uh, out in the field, real uh, real roads, trying to get people to stop throwing litter out of their cars at the side of the road uh, down in Barry. And uh, we did three different interventions, absolute classic behavioural psychology, nudgy type interventions. There was a message about social norms, you know, pointing out that most people don't drop litter and uh, a message about the likelihood of being caught. It was real classic um, nudgy type interventions. And the lovely, beautifully designed experiment with these messages that rotated around the roads week on week. We had this lovely objective measure of behaviour, which was that every Sunday night, the council picked up all the litter and weighed it. So we had the mass of litter as an actual outcome measure. Beautiful, beautiful study. So there we are. Baseline measure before we started. It was about 10 kilograms of litter per week. Follow up after the end of the study, about 10 kilograms per week. And in the three weeks that we were putting messages there, the amount of litter shot up. Uh, so huge rebound effects, behavior got actually far worse, completely could not have predicted that in advance. Um, now, on the one hand, this will be the first anyone's heard about this study because you can't really publish it because it was so unexpected. Uh, and on the other hand, I think it's just a nice illustration of how a lot of behavioral science is still a little bit throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks because that stuff should have worked. It did. It didn't just not work it did the opposite of what it should do and I don't think anyone would have expected that in advance and that's the sort of reason I felt so powerless in the face of the COVID pandemic I could certainly have said yeah oh you could try messaging that looks like this so you could try messaging that looks like that but I don't think I'd have known for sure it would have worked. And in hindsight because obviously we're now in a period where we're reflecting on government action during that period and sort of the actions of the public as well, I suppose. Was was there perhaps too much reliance then on people from your line of line of work in terms of shaping the messaging and also therefore quite big public policy decisions? It's really hard to say because on the one hand, this is the classic um, justifying the counterfactual. Mm, um, yeah. Would doing a different thing have been better? Who can possibly say? But then on the other hand, I don't know how much of what happened, and I genuinely don't know how much of what happened was directly what behavioural scientists were suggesting, how much of it was just communications people coming up with it, how much of it was suggestions filtered through communications people into slogans. I, I genuinely don't know. Yeah, sure. More, more to come out on that. And yeah. And a conversation for, maybe, for later, perhaps. When it comes to drivers and motorists, they are a particularly interesting uh, case study, aren't they, in terms of their behaviour? Because of a perfectly meek, mild, ordinary person get behind the wheel of a car and do things that most ordinary people wouldn't. I mean, I've done social media training where, where a driver has been likened to someone sort of on Twitter being much more aggressive than they normally would be in, in person. So why why is that? Why are, why are motorists and drivers such an interesting case study in that regard? Well, I think there's a, a lot of different elements there and people in the past have suggested there's things like anonymity and lack of consequences to your behaviour and so on. Yeah. The element of this that I think is really interesting and that we've worked on recently is a phenomenon that we called motonormativity. So this was uh, us trying to explain, you, you can very readily see uh, clear double standards in the context of motoring. So for example, uh, I would suggest that the British public 
take a quite a dim view of lawbreaking, unless it's by motorists. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, literally at any given moment, most motorists are speeding in built-up areas. Mm-hmm. You know, at any given moment, uh, illegal parking, lack of taxation, you know, lack of MOTs, these things are just endemic. Driving uninsured, absolutely endemic lawbreaking. And we all just go, oh, pff, well, what can you do? Uh, in a way that we wouldn't do in terms of property crime or violent crime or anything like this. In fact, we'll tolerate violent crime as long as it's done with a car. So we wanted to really get to grips with the the very evident double standards. And we went about it with, uh, uh, essentially, we wanted to demonstrate that this phenomenon is real. And so we commissioned a, uh, a public research agency to go out and sample it was about 2,200 members of the public. And what we did, again, we can't help lying to people, we randomly gave people either set A or set B of a set of questions. Set A asked a bunch of questions about driving. Set B was exactly the same questions, but with a couple of words changed here or there so that they were the same question, but in a different context. Um, so, for example, one of the questions that really stood out was, do you agree or disagree? Uh, it's okay for people to... Uh, smoke in public where other people have to breathe the fumes? Or do you agree or disagree? It's okay to drive in public where other people have to breathe the fumes. And you just saw this incredible difference. If you ask about smoking, the vast majority of people said, oh no, that's not okay. If you ask about driving, the majority of people said, yeah, that's fine. Now it's breathing fumes is breathing fumes. Um, The source of them shouldn't really matter, but you got this huge difference. And so we interpreted this as an an example of what's known as the special pleading fallacy, this logical fallacy whereby in debate or in narratives, certain cases just quite unconsciously and automatically just get given a free ride and they don't get treated the way that other cases do. So we argued that this special pleading, this idea that uh, motoring gets treated in a way that other topics don't get treated, feeds this phenomenon of motor normativity, which is not only that uh, driving is normal and something that people do do, and not only that law-breaking or antisocial behaviour is something that people do do in cars, but critically, and this is in some ways the big logical leap of what we argued, is that it's something that people should do. And you can actually tie this all the way back, if you really want to be pretentious about it, you can go all the way back to David Hume in the 18th century, uh, where he talks about uh, something called the is-ought fallacy. He said people have this tendency to look at the world and say, well, the world is like this, therefore it ought to be like this. And we argued that there's something quite similar to this going on in in the traffic context, you know, you go out in the street, you see people parking antisocially. I literally just had to walk around some antisocially illegally parked vehicles to get here just now. Mm. You see the speeding, you see the bullying and things like this. People, we argue that people grow up in that world. Uh, everyone alive today has only ever known a world where that behavior is normalized. They see it everywhere. And not only do they say, well, that's how the world is. They infer to themselves, I guess that's how the world should be. And therefore, when you try to make changes, if you try to encourage people to drive a bit less or to shift the way they travel to active modes or cleaner modes or public transport, um, there's very often a a surprisingly aggressive backlash. Uh, And we argue that the reason for that is because people have internalised or inferred 
that the world should be the way it is and that therefore to say that it should be different is to challenge the right, proper way of things. So it's a groupthink, kind of crowd psychology sort of issue. Yeah, but each person getting their their own direction, each person gets there their own individual way uh, to the same uh, conclusion through observation. I think a lot of academic, uh, academically minded people might listen and think, we've all been in that situation where we've tried to convey a, a point that is unconventional or perhaps not uh, not ordinary and the sort of resistance you, you meet when it's just not what people see or think of as just the, the the norm. Yeah, so it's very, very, very interesting. You've also done work on, um, sticking with drivers, on uh, the overtaking of cyclists. Do you want to tell us about that? So this was some of the first work I did, actually. This was way back in the early 2000s. And there'd been some real debate, uh, online debates <laughs> taken too seriously by academics, of what influenced the amount of space left by passing motorists. And I just saw that people were making very contradictory claims. Some people were saying, oh, you know, I think if you ride further out into the road, drivers leave more space and you're safer. And other people saying the opposite. And so I thought, well, look, we're not going to settle this unless I just go out and collect some data. So I found a very useful, uh, very clever engineer who was able to create a bicycle with distance sensors on it so I could ride around and gather data from all the vehicles that passed and did a bunch of experimental manipulation. So I tried riding in different parts of the road, uh, tried different outfits, wearing a helmet, not wearing a helmet, things like this, and looked at whether there was any differences in driver's passing behaviour as a result. And sure enough, there were several differences. Uh, riding further out into the road meant that drivers got closer because basically they don't change their path. And so if you ride further out, you're closer to them. Uh, I found that disguising myself as a woman meant I got more space from passing distances, passing drivers. Disguise yourself as a woman? Yeah, yeah. How, how did you do that? Uh, it was basically a long wig. <laughs> and uh, so I'd, I'd ride up and down a road and put the wig on and then ride up and down and take it off. And I just kept doing that for days. And like, proper research. Yeah, proper stuff. Um, and it made quite a substantial difference. The, the, you know, with the wig on, I got quite a bit more space. Now, interestingly, that's been replicated several times. So... There were some people who did it in Taiwan and in Florida using real women, uh, which was a big step up from what I was doing. And they found the same effect. They, f they found that women were treated better. There was then a study in Australia a couple of years ago who found no difference. Uh, so Australians hate all cyclists regardless of gender. Helmets made a difference. This has been the controversial one. I've basically spent the last 15 years talking about this. Uh, putting the helmet on led to drivers getting a bit closer. Um which has been a bit controversial because a lot of people don't like to hear that uh, because it violates common sense. Surely wearing a helmet is a, a unequivocally good safety intervention, but it did lead to drivers getting a bit closer. But a driver might see someone without a helmet and think they're more vulnerable, must give them a wider berth. Is that Well, is that interestingly, we did a follow-up study to try and get at that. So there, at the end of that first study, there were two possible explanations. One is exactly what you've just said. Uh, oh, that person could be vulnerable. I'd better watch out. The flip side of which being that person's got helmet on, it's okay if I get close to them. That's the corollary yeah, of what you yeah, just said. Yeah, yeah, sure. um, the other, and there was good grounds for saying this, that this was rooted in previous research. The other explanation was that maybe the helmet and you know basically wearing the gear was a marker of skill and experience. And so we decided to test it. So this was with a colleague from Brunel called Ian Garrard. And he said, oh, look, I'm cycling to work every day anyway. Why don't we test this? Why don't we get some data? 
And I remember we sat around Ian's kitchen table one night trying to work out how do you look inexperienced? Uh, and we just brainstormed for ages. How do, you, how do you look inexperienced on a bike? And in the end, we got this tabard printed with novice cyclist <laughs> on the back. We thought, oh, God, you know, it's about the only option we can think of. So he rode around. So basically every morning he'd shuffle some cards and pick a card at random and wear the outfit that the card suggested. Uh, and some of those uh, looked very experienced, like, you know, it's all the Lycra gear and the helmets and everything. Some of them were just regular clothes. There was the novice cyclist and things like this. And he tested all these different outfits. And what we found there was that the the outfits that looked very experienced, all the Lycra and everything, and the novice cyclist outfit were treated exactly the same by passing drivers. That suggests that the effect we saw in the original study of drivers getting closer with the helmet wasn't because the helmet made you look experienced. It probably was what you said, oh, he's got a helmet on, I can get a bit closer. Could it be, and this is just me thinking aloud totally, could it just be that if you just see someone's ordinary head, they look more like a person as well, and therefore you're you're more worried about sort of being getting too close to a person? And I don't know, a helmet dehumanises you or something like that? It's possible, actually. And um, again, the very, very first study I ever published in the traffic domain was asking people to uh, look at photographs of traffic scenes and describe them in their own words. And we analysed the language that people were using. And there was an element of humanisation, dehumanisation in that. So, for example, if you saw uh, a person on a bike or a pedestrian, the language was always human. It would always be, you know, a, a, a woman is riding a bike or something like that. When the, there was a car in the scene, even if the driver was clearly visible, the language was nearly always dehumanised. So a car is waiting at a crossing while a pedestrian walks across. Um, so it's possible there's something of that sort going on. There's a sort of personal aspect to this, I suppose, isn't there? Because you do a lot of cycling and probably have come across some bad behaviour from motorists in your time and probably been quite, quite affected by it. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the reason I started doing that overtaking work in the first place was I was literally cycling to work one morning and somebody pulled up alongside me pointed at the double yellow lines at the side of the road and shouted at me you meant to be riding between them and i thought oh this is no good and better start studying this because <laughs> it was just at a moment in my career where i was looking for a new research direction i'd you know my phd was in a very different area my phd was in memory and language uh, very scientific very abstract and i was just at a point of thinking i need to find something it's about the real world that I can work on. And that guy shouting at me out of his car basically made it happen. I know from personal experience, by the way, as well, those double yellow lines can get very slippery. You don't, definitely don't yeah. go anywhere near them. Yeah, <laughs> and the idea that, I mean, that that gap between the double yellow lines, that's about 10 centimetres from the curb. <laughs> um, it's not it's not just uh, cycling to work, though, is it, in terms of personal experience? You, um, you do a bit more than that in terms of getting on the bike. I have, yeah. So um, a few years ago, I, I really got hooked into um, ultra-distance cycle racing, um, especially there was a race called the Transcontinental, which people probably haven't heard of, but it's probably one of the most dramatic sporting events they've never heard of, which is several hundred people get together in some bit of Europe every year and ride as fast as they can to some other bit of Europe every year with an almost completely free choice of route. So you have to plan your own route, and um, that's half the skill right there, is choosing a better route than your opponents. Uh, and it varies from year to year, but the year I did it, it was about 4,000 kilometres or thereabouts. 
uh, as fast as possible, non-stop race. So the clock starts at the beginning and it doesn't stop till you end. So if you decide to have a sleep, then the clock still ticks. If your bike breaks, the clock is still ticking. And so there's just this constant push to keep moving all the time uh, for maybe 10 days, 14 days, 16 days, depending how long it takes. And wasn't there some sort of world record that you were involved with? Yeah, yeah off the back not of, telling us. Well, off the back of that. So I did the transcontinental race and that was the first time I'd ever t- attempted anything at all like this. And um, I just did a lot better than I, I expected. Uh, so I entered another similar race the following year called the North Cape 4000, which again started in Italy and went up to the northernmost point of Europe. And to my quite considerable surprise, I came first in that. <laughs> Uh, and then the following year, 2019, I thought, well, what can I do now? And uh, I had to go at the Guinness World Record for the fastest crossing of Europe. And uh, I was able to knock about two and a half days off the record. Two and a half days? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know over long distances, yeah. that's maybe does not, doesn't sound as huge mm. as uh, as it might, yeah. but that's still quite, still quite impressive. Yeah, because I think it was about 16 and three quarter days riding. Wow, well done. Thank you. Yeah, it was quite hard. <laughs> um, going back to cars um, mm. and just changing tack a little bit, uh, electric cars mm. and their environmental impact. You've said some very interesting things about this. And again, I don't work in this area at all, but I've often looked at in electric cars and thought, this, these don't seem like the quite like the cell that they, they seem to be. Because at the end of the day, if you're charging them, that electricity has to come from some sort of source in the first place. So yeah, tell us from a more informed perspective, what your critique of electric cars has been? Well, there's a couple of elements of this. And one of the issues you'll find very quickly if you go into this area is the conversation frequently gets derailed by people talking about specifics. And I would argue one of the reasons for that is this motor normativity, this understanding, well, obviously uh, going from place to place involves a car. So let's really pick apart any arguments against this. Uh, So, you know, oh, you reckon the carbon intensity of lithium extraction is this? Well, actually, it's this. And you get you get derailed very quickly in minutiae that don't help. So maybe as a thought experiment, how about today we say that electric cars run off um, unicorn size? <laughs> uh, there, is, there is zero carbon impact to them. Let's just imagine there is no negative uh, pollution consequence from an electric car whatsoever. Now, obviously, that's not real. Uh, but let's go with it. Let's just say they have no uh, pollution consequence at all. I'd still have concerns. I'll give you a couple of background facts to explain the concerns. If you go out in the street and look at all the vehicles passing, uh, here are some facts we know from transport research. Most of the vehicles got one person in, and yet five seats. Uh, most of them are driving a short distance. Uh, the majority of car trips in Britain are less than five miles. Um, now, worse out here in Swansea, that's Mumbles. The majority of car trips are less than from here to Mumbles. The majority. That's millions and millions of car trips every day. And the majority of those drivers are able-bodied. Now, when you put those things together, most car trips could, in theory, not happen. And that matters because a person making a car trip, a person who becomes uh, dependent or overuses the car is putting themselves in harm because they are turning down opportunities for really important daily exercise, you know, in terms of uh, public health, uh, combating obesity, things like this, 
everyday incidental physical activity is one of the best things we can do for keeping people fit and healthy and living longer and having healthy long lives. So the overdependence on the car, even if it runs on unicorn size, is fighting against that. It uh, creates danger because, of course, cars hit people on you know regrettably frequently. And not only is it the danger, it's also the feeling of danger. So as cars are shooting around our urban environments, it makes it unpleasant to be out there. It feels dangerous even if it's not. Uh, so people don't go outside, the public realm becomes empty, which means that people don't go outside, which means the public realm becomes empty. You get vicious cycles like that of, of people being cut off and isolated. Uh, another problem, again, in our magical non-polluting cars, uh, what about poorer people who don't have access to them? As soon as we say, well, you know, these cars are magical, they solve all our problems, what about the people who can't reach your out-of-town shopping centre? What about the people who can't reach the hospital that you've put over here four miles from the population centre on the assumption that everybody drives? So even if you forget the pollution, our reliance and our overuse of cars is excluding people who don't have one or don't want one. It's creating danger and uh, uh, the fear of danger and severing urban areas. There's just so many problems that still exist. The public health consequences of people not act having physical activity. Electric cars don't address any of those things. You're, you're preaching to the, the converted with me, at least, here, because the, the, the small but significant uplift and buzz you can get from just doing a, a, a brisk cycle into work for 10 minutes is really quite significant, isn't it? And like you said, there's a public health aspect here too. But also... Some electric cars, I know they're actually fitted with sound generators in some cases, but they're really quiet, aren't they? I've actually nearly been knocked over by an electric car because I use my hearing as well as my sight when I cross the road or step out or whatever, and I've just sometimes not heard these things coming. Well, it's interesting you say that um, because they're not as quiet as people think. So on the one hand, and again, this is where we start to get into the minutiae that I just mm, said we shouldn't. Mm, sure. They tend to be heavy. Battery, yeah. Batteries aren't great. Batteries have low energy density. They tend to be very heavy. Uh, and so the mass of those cars means that they are quite loud. Um, but we did some work on this a few years ago. So um, we decided to uh, do some work on the likely noise consequences of electrification for people who live near major roads. So vehicle noise is actually a way, way bigger public health problem than people realise. Uh, there are literally a lot of people dying prematurely because of the noise from major roads. Because they can't sleep and stuff Yeah, like hypertension and things like that, yeah. So this noise literally kills people in really considerable numbers. It's one of the big unspoken hidden dangers of society that we don't talk about. Uh, so we said, well, is electric vehicles going to fix this? And so I was working with some engineers over in Dublin and they did this really good stuff. They set up a road with microphones and they drove different cars past it. And they use those recordings to then synthesize uh, the sounds that you might hear as you're living next to major roads of the future with different mixes of vehicles. So we went all the way from 100% conventional vehicles driving past up to all the way to 100% electric vehicles with different mixtures. Uh, and I remember uh, John Kennedy, the guy I was working with, sent over the files and I phoned him up and said, John, I think you've just sent me 10 copies of the same file because I can't hear any differences here. Interesting. Um, and he said, no, you've got to listen really carefully. And if you listen really carefully, you go, oh, yeah, I can just about tell that that's slightly different. Um, and we tested people. We gave people tests and we asked them questions like, uh, you know, we got them to listen to all these different recordings and ask questions like, you know, how pleasant or unpleasant is this? How clean or non-clean? 
bunch of bunch of sort of aesthetic ratings of what they were hearing. And what we found was that the differences were very subtle. Um, the 100% electric was seen as very, very slightly less bad. But I used the phrase less bad really deliberately. It wasn't really better. It was less bad uh, and only subtly less bad. So while an electric vehicle might be slightly quieter at three kilometers an hour, at any sort of realistic speed, because of tire noise, which is actually what most of it is, at any realistic speed, they're pretty much the same. Like I said, they're heavy, so the tire noise might be... Absolutely. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Thinking about the sort of the the group behaviour then, is is there an element here of people, because I would say a lot of people my age who I know, their ambition is to try and buy an electric car. Mm. But is this just a a little bit of a case of trying to look and feel a bit virtuous for, for having one? I don't know. There's a line that somebody came out with, and I wish I knew who first said this because it's very good. Electric cars, the future of cars, but cars aren't the future of transport. Mm. Um, we need Going back to what I was saying earlier about how most journeys are short, most journeys are one person travelling by themselves. Um, we need to be supplanting those and moving them to different modes. Uh, and my worry and the reason I've argued for quite a long time about getting on the hype train with electric cars is I fear, especially in the context of a society where this is all seen as normal and where people don't notice the problem of driving 500 metres a bottle of milk, we're distracting ourselves from the solutions that are jumping out and should be obvious by trying to say, well, I'm used to cars, I just want one that makes me feel good. I know your messaging is is very nuanced and it's very sort of multi, multi-layered, but on the, on the surface level, you know, you've critiqued electric cars uh, again, on the surface level, you've actually, some of your findings have said that wearing a helmet when cycling doesn't actually make any difference to the way that motorists respond to you. Have you have you ever sort of received kind of negative pushback because of those kind of headline messages? Oh, constantly, constantly. <laughs> I mean, my Twitter's like a bin fire. People get so outraged at this stuff. Um, like just yesterday, I posted a photograph of the railway station at Bristol where I was travelling from and said, oh, look what an unfriendly welcome to the city this is with this rank of taxes spewing diesel out. And you wouldn't believe the vitriol I got just in the last 24 hours from saying something like that. I think it goes back to the motor normativity. Uh, I think a lot of people have so internalised the idea that the way the world currently is set up must be how it should continue forever. And they're so blind to the negativities of the status quo that uh, any attempt to criticise it gets slammed down really hard in a lot of cases. And I think, it's, it, I think it is one of those things. I think we will look back in 50 years and there'll be that element of, what were they thinking? You know, like smoking. You know, that's one of the things I, you know, I'm 49 now. Uh, I've, I've been through that whole chain there and seen it happen. When I was in my very early 20s, it was still seen as impossible to ask people not to smoke in public the harms of smoking in pubs were just seen as one of those things you just had to put up with if you went out. Um, the fact that your clothes stank the next day, the fact you were just sat there breathing in cancer, it was just seen as, well, tough. What are you going to do about it? We can't change this. And I think, you know, we'd look back today and go, oh my God, what were we thinking? I think we'll do exactly that with motoring one day, but it's a bigger uphill push. What about self-driving cars? I'm not sure they're going to happen anytime soon. I'm not a computer scientist, but the ones I have spoken to seem really quite sceptical about the idea of them coming anytime soon. If you think about it, let's go with the thought experiment. Let's say we've got self-driving cars with perfect artificial intelligence that never crash. 
that run on unicorn size so that there's no pollution consequences whatsoever, what would the world look like? Well, immediately you've got more driving. Uh, so that all those problems of uh, pedestrians not being able to cross the road, people being cut off, the noise, all of those problems, uh, the lack of access for poorer people, those are all just exacerbated now. So those problems are worse than today. Potentially, there's much less consequences of where you live and work. So now we've got more sprawl. Um, it, to a first approximation, it doesn't matter where you put housing, where you put hospitals, where you put shops, where you put offices. So they're now spread all over the place. Cities become less of a thing. Urban areas become less of a thing. So that now means you probably spend more time traveling, more time sat in your car. There are so many negatives from that sort of environment that I think we should be talking about a lot more. Tell me if I'm wrong here, but I, I guess at the core of your work is trying to change or influence people's behaviour through sort of messaging. Um, there are obviously ethical implications to all of that. In in previous answers, you talked about um, lying to people. I know you were being very sort of deliberately yeah, yeah. very frivolous then, and, and that's not exactly what it is about. But people could, I guess, lay that criticism at your door, couldn't they? That there's a sort of an element of deception here in the in in the field. You're right, and it, it is an interesting thing to think about. Um, it's interesting. Maybe this is because I'm married to somebody with a marketing background. My initial instinct is to say, well, is that actually different from advertising, which mm -hmm. is very much doing the same thing. Yeah. Uh, arguably, I would say in some more unethical ways of advertising often works by trying to make you feel bad about yourself in order to sell you a solution. Uh, and it doesn't do it in an honest way. Um, so yeah, that, that's, it's interesting that my initial reaction to that question is quite a defensive one, isn't it? I think one of the reasons I don't feel there's an ethical conflict in what I do is that very often where I end up with the sorts of work I'm looking at is not trying to influence behavior through subtle nudges and means like that, uh, partly because they don't work, as we've <laughs> talked about with the littering work, but because I don't think it's appropriate. Uh, I think pretty much everything I've ever done where I've reached a, a conclusion about, well, this is what we should do. It's always been about explicit messaging or explicit action. You know, for example, we should uh, make it easier to walk places. Uh, it's not saying, oh, you know, we should subtly nudge this and we should subtly do that. It's saying, no, when you press a button at pedestrian crossing, the lights should change immediately. They're more the sort of things I say, and they're very explicit and not about trying to influence behavior without people noticing. It's about taking firm, concrete action to change behavior for the better and probably telling people you're doing it. One of my bugbears at the moment, because I, I do drive, I don't particularly like driving, don't want to drive as much, but the the rent-a-bike cycle mm. schemes are very, very good, mm. but they often don't work. And it drives me absolutely nuts in the end. I get so frustrated by how ineffective these, these, these schemes can be. I often just think, well, I'm almost forced to drive here. So better non-driving infrastructure would be top of my list if I were king of the world. <laughs> you know, it's really interesting though, because again, I'm going to suggest that there's an element of motor normativity in this, that people go, oh, you know, I tried um, an alternative to driving and oh, you know, the bus was five minutes later or, or the higher bike, you had a problem. Uh, and yeah, it's true. Those are genuine problems and we need to address them. But look at all the genuine problems with driving a car that people are completely blind to. How many hours of your life and how much money did you have to hand over for lessons to learn to drive. None goes, oh, you know, um, 
500 pounds of lessons and week after week after week of my time. Who wants to do that? They just accept that as completely normal. Whereas if you said, oh, it's, you know, 10 minutes to learn how to use a hire bike, people, oh no, who's got time for that? You've got to service your car and replace its own tires and um, put fuel in it every couple of days. Yeah, you might break down. Or yeah, something like yeah. That. And, yeah. And all of those negativities, people don't even notice at all because it's just so normalised. But uh, we're very attuned to the negativities of alternatives. Yeah, this is this is all making me think. Uh, absolutely. Uh, there'll be people listening to Ian who thinks all of this is very important. Uh, it's very crucial work. If, Especially if they're young and maybe thinking about what to study at university, what advice would you give those people about going into this field? I, I would say have a good look around at the universities because there's lots of opportunities to study these kinds of applied things at university, but different psychology departments differ in terms of how applied they are. So some departments are, are very theoretical, very laboratory-based, and others have a much more applied real-world slant to what they do. So having a look at the ethos of the departments and especially the work of the people who are in that department can tell you a lot about the kind of psychology you're going to be exposed to. Lots to mull over, Ian. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you want to find out more about Ian's research, you can visit his website, drianwalker.com. To find out more about this podcast and Swansea University's research, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research. That's all from us today. Thanks for listening. And thank you again to my guest, Professor Ian Walker. If you've enjoyed this episode, please follow us. I'm Sam Blaxland, and that was Exploring Global Problems from Swansea University.